0: Volume three, chapter fifteen of *The Tenant of Wildfell Hall* by Anne Brontë. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume three, chapter fifteen, fluctuations. The tardy gig had overtaken me at last. I entered it and bade the man who brought it drive to Grassdale Manor. I was too busy with my own thoughts to care to drive it myself i would see mrs huntingdon there could be no impropriety in that now that her husband had been dead above a year and by her indifference or her joy at my unexpected arrival i could soon tell whether her heart was truly mine but my companion a loquacious forward fellow was not disposed to leave me to the indulgence of my private cogitations there they go said he as the carriages filed away before us there'll be brave doings on yonder to-day as what come to-morrow know anything of that family sir or you're a stranger in these parts i know them by report <laughs> there's the best of 'em em gone anyhow and i suppose the old missus is a-goin to leave after this stir's gotten overed and take herself off somewhere to live on her own bit of a jointure and the young un at least the new one, she's none so very young is coming down to live at the grove is mr hargrave married then Aye, sir a few months since he should have been wed afore to a widow lady they couldn't agree over the money she'd a rare long purse and mr hargrave wanted it all to himself but she wouldn't let it go and so then they fell out this one isn't quite as rich nor as handsome either but she hasn't been married before she's very plain they say and getting on to forty or past and so you know if she didn't jump at this opportunity she thought she'd never get a better i guess she thought such a handsome young husband was worth all that she ever had and he might take it in welcome but i lay she'll rue her bargain afore long they say she begins already to see that he isn't altogether that nice generous polite delightful gentleman that she thought him afore marriage he begins a bein careless and masterful already ay and she'll find him harder and carelesser nor she thinks on you seem to be well acquainted with him i observed i am sir i've known him since he was quite a young gentleman and a proud one he was and a wilful i was servant yonder for several years but i couldn't stand their niggardly ways she got ever longer and worse did missis with her nipping and screwing and watching and grudging so i thought i'd find another place as what came and then he discoursed upon his present position as ostler at the rose and crown and how greatly superior it was to his former one in comfort and freedom though inferior in outward respectability and entered into various details respecting the domestic economy at the grove and the characters of mrs hargrave and her son to which i gave no heed being too much occupied with my own anxious fluttering anticipations and with the character of the country through which we passed that in spite of the leafless trees and snowy ground had for some time begun to manifest unequivocal signs of the approach to a gentleman's country seat are we not near the house said i interrupting him in the middle of his discourse yes sir yon's the park my heart sank within me to behold that stately mansion in the midst of its expansive grounds the park as beautiful now in its wintry garb as it could be in its summer glory the majestic sweep the undulating swell and fall displayed to full advantage in that robe of dazzling purity stainless and printless save one long winding track left by the trooping deer the stately timber trees with their heavy laden branches gleaming white against the dull gray sky the deep encircling woods the broad expanse of water sleeping in frozen quiet and the weeping ash and willow drooping their snow-clad boughs above it all presented a picture striking indeed and pleasing to an unencumbered mind but by no means encouraging to me there was one comfort however all this was entailed upon little arthur and could not under any circumstances strictly speaking be his mother's but how was she situated overcoming with a sudden effort my repugnance to mention her name to my garrulous companion i asked him if he knew whether her late husband had left a will and how the property had been disposed of oh yes he knew all about it and i was quickly informed that to her had been left the full control and management of the estate during her son's minority besides the absolute unconditional possession of her own fortune but i knew her father had not given her much and the small additional sum that had been settled upon her before marriage before the close of the explanation we drew up at the park gates now for the trial if i should find her within but alas she might be still at Stainingley. her brother had given me no intimation to the contrary i inquired at the porter's lodge if mrs huntingdon were at home no she was with her aunt in blankshire but was expected to return before christmas she usually spent most of her time at Stainingley, only coming to grassdale occasionally when the management of affairs or the interest of her tenants and dependents required her presence Near what town is Stainingly situated? I asked. The requisite information was soon obtained. Now then, my man, give me the reins, and we'll return to M. I must have some breakfast at the Rose and Crown, and then away to Stainingly by the first coach for Blank. You'll not get there today, sir. No matter. I don't want to get there today. I want to get there tomorrow and pass the night on the road, at an inn, sir. You'd better by half stay at our house. And then start fresh to-morrow and have the whole day for your journey. What and lose twelve hours? Not I. Perhaps, sir, you're related to Mrs. Huntingdon, said he, seeking to indulge his curiosity since his cupidity was not to be gratified. I have not that honour. Ah, well, returned he with a dubious sidelong glance at my splashed grey trousers and rough pea-jacket. But he added encouragingly, there's many a fine lady like that. Has kinfolk poorer nor what you are, sir, I should think. No doubt, and there's many a fine gentleman would esteem himself vastly honoured to be able to claim kindred with the lady you mention. He now cunningly glanced at my face. Perhaps, sir, you mean to. I guessed what was coming and checked the impertinent conjecture with perhaps you'll be so good as to be quiet a moment. I'm busy, busy, sir. Yes, in my mind and don't want to have my cogitations disturbed indeed sir you will see that my disappointment had not very greatly affected me for i should not have been able so quietly to bear with the fellow's impertinence the fact is i thought it as well nay better all things considered that i should not see her to-day that i should have time to compose my mind for the interview to prepare it for a heavier disappointment after the intoxicating delight experienced by this sudden removal of my former apprehensions. Not to mention that after traveling a night and a day without intermission and rushing in hot haste through six miles of new-fallen snow, I could not possibly be in a very presentable condition. At M. I had time before the coach started to replenish my forces with a hearty breakfast and to obtain the refreshment of my usual morning's ablutions and the amelioration of some slight change in my toilette. And also to dispatch a short note to my mother excellent son that i was to assure her that i was still in existence and to excuse my non-appearance at the expected time it was a long journey to Stainingley for those slow traveling days but i did not deny myself needful refreshment on the road nor even a night's rest at a wayside inn choosing rather to brook a little delay than to present myself worn wild and weather-beaten before my mistress and her aunt who would be astonished enough to see me without that next morning therefore i not only fortified myself with as substantial a breakfast as my excited feelings would allow me to swallow but i bestowed a little more than usual time and care upon my toilette and furnished with a change of linen from my small carpet bag well-brushed clothes well-polished boots and neat new gloves i mounted the lightning and resumed my journey i had nearly two stages yet before me but the coach i was informed passed through the neighbourhood of Stainingley, and having desired to be set down as near the hall as possible i had nothing to do but to sit with folded arms and speculate upon the coming hour it was a clear frosty morning the very fact of sitting exalted aloft surveying the snowy landscape and sweet sunny sky inhaling the pure bracing air and crunching away over the crisp frozen snow was exhilarating enough in itself but add to this the idea of to what goal i was hastening and whom i expected to meet and you may have some faint conception of my frame of mind at the time only a faint one though for my heart swelled with unspeakable delight and my spirits rose almost to madness in spite of my prudent endeavours to bind them down to a reasonable platitude by thinking of the undeniable difference between helen's rank and mine of all that she had passed through since our parting of her long unbroken silence and above all of her cool cautious aunt whose counsel she would doubtless be careful not to slight again these considerations made my heart flutter with anxiety and my chest heave with impatience to get the crisis over but they could not dim her image in my mind or mar the vivid recollection of what had been said and felt between us or destroy the keen anticipation of what was to be in fact i could not realize their terrors now towards the close of the journey however a couple of my fellow passengers kindly came to my assistance and brought me low enough fine land, this said one of them pointing with his umbrella to the wide fields on the right conspicuous for their compact hedgerows deep well-cut ditches and fine timber trees growing sometimes on the borders sometimes in the midst of the enclosure very fine land if you saw it in the summer or spring i responded the other a gruff elderly man with a drab great-coat buttoned up to the chin and a cotton umbrella between his knees it's old maxwell's i suppose it was his sir but he's dead now you're aware and has left it all to his niece all every root of it and the mansion-house and all every atom of his worldly goods except just a trifle by way of remembrance to his nephew down in Blankshire and an annuity to his wife. It's strange, sir. It is, sir. And she wasn't his own niece neither. But he had no near relations of his own, none but a nephew he'd quarreled with, and he always had a partiality for this one. And then his wife advised him to it, they say. She'd brought most of the property, and it was her wish that this lady should have it. Hm She'll be a fine catch for somebody. She will so. She's a widow, but quite young yet, and uncommon handsome. A fortune of her own besides, and only one child. And she's nursing a fine estate for him. And there'll be lots to speak for her. Fraid there's no chance for us. Facetiously jogging me with his elbow, as well as his companion. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, no offence, sir. I hope to me. <clears throat> I should think she'll marry none but a nobleman myself. Look ye, sir. Resumed he, turning to his other neighbour and pointing past me with his umbrella that's the hall grand park you see and all them woods plenty of timber there and lots of game hello what now this exclamation was occasioned by the sudden stoppage of the coach at the park gates gentlemen for stainingly hall cried the coachman and i rose and threw my carpet-bag on to the ground preparatory to dropping myself down after it sickly sir asked my talkative neighbour Staring me in the face, I dare say it was white enough. No, here, coachman. Thank you, sir. All right, the coachman pocketed his fee and drove away. Leaving me not walking up the park, but pacing to and fro before its gates with folded arms and eyes fixed upon the ground. An overwhelming force of images, thoughts, impressions crowding on my mind, and nothing tangibly distinct but this my love had been cherished in vain my hope was gone forever i must tear myself away at once and banish or suppress all thoughts of her like the remembrance of a wild mad dream gladly would i have lingered round the place for hours in the hope of catching at least one distant glimpse of her before i went but it must not be i must not suffer her to see me for what could have brought me hither but the hope of reviving her attachment with a view hereafter to obtain her hand and could i bear that she should think me capable of such a thing of presuming upon the acquaintance the love if you will accidentally contracted or rather forced upon her against her will when she was an unknown fugitive toiling for her own support apparently without fortune family or connections to come upon her now when she was reinstated in her proper sphere and claim a share in her prosperity which had it never failed her would most certainly have kept her unknown to me forever and this too when we had parted sixteen months ago and she had expressly forbidden me to hope for a reunion in this world and never sent me a line or a message from that day to this no the very idea was intolerable and even if she should have a lingering affection for me still ought i to disturb her peace by awakening those feelings to subject her to the struggles of conflicting duty and inclination, to whichsoever side the latter might allure or the former imperatively call her? Whether she should deem it her duty to risk the slights and censures of the world, the sorrow and displeasure of those she loved, for a romantic idea of truth and constancy to me, or to sacrifice her individual wishes to the feelings of her friends and her own sense of prudence and the fitness of things? No, and I would not. I would go at once and she should never know that i had approached the place of her abode for though i might disclaim all idea of ever aspiring to her hand or even of soliciting a place in her friendly regard her peace should not be broken by my presence nor her heart afflicted by the sight of my fidelity adieu then dear helen forever forever adieu so said i and yet i could not tear myself away i moved a few paces and then looked back for one last view of her stately home that i might have its outward form at least impressed upon my mind as indelibly as her own image which alas i must not see again then walked a few steps farther and then lost in melancholy musings paused again and leant my back against a rough old tree that grew beside the road end of volume three chapter fifteen recording by expatriate in bangor maine